welcome to the My Tribe podcast. Um, needless to say, I'm very, very excited to be recording this podcast, to be able to record this episode. Um, I'm truly a lucky, really lucky guy, really blessed dude. Um, and it's just great to be here. It's great to be report, recording a podcast at all, but certainly this one is one that'll forever be special to me and to a lot of my family and friends. I'm calling this my heart attack memoir. You're about to get just me. And I am basically going to verbally go through the memoir of this entire experience. Uh, what I remember, what I don't remember. And sort of end with the biggest lessons I've learned. Uh, Mary-Kate has been asking me lately, what did you learn from all this? What did What does this change for you? And I keep telling her, I'll answer that in a podcast. I can't just answer that uh, at the kitchen table kind of thing. And so um, thank you to her for sort of driving me to think about this. And, um, you know, I like to use the My Tribe podcast to sort of document my relationships generally. Uh, but today I'm going to go off that and sort of document an experience. And thanks for joining. I hope you enjoy it. Um, my Heart Attack Memoir. Uh, I think the first thing I should say is that there was a really good chance I was going to die. And it's it's important that I'm able to say that. You know, the research we've done, the type of heart attack that I had has a 12% survival rate. That means 88% of the people that experience what I experienced don't make it. Um, the heart attack is actually nicknamed the widow maker. <coughs> Excuse me probably going to have some voice issues as we go through this because I haven't talked this long in a while. Um, it's actually called the Widowmaker. Um, and not only did I have this type of heart attack, but then after the heart attack, after they had put a stent in my artery and, and sort of got my heart back to, you know, okay, uh, I had so many other things happen. I was on ECMO, which is the fancy name for life support, which was just taking the blood out of my body completely almost and re-oxygenating it and then putting it back in. I was on a ventilator for a while. Um, I At one point, a couple weeks in, my lungs filled up with fluid. And just when the family thought they were out of the woods, I was right back into severe um, at risk. I had pneumonia. I had so much delirium. I didn't even know where I was for a long time, as I'll talk about. I had brain MRIs before I was even awake because there was so much concern that they would do all of the things they were doing to save my body. But then when I woke up, I wouldn't have a brain. Um, and, you know, there was a day, like I said, with the lungs filling up with fluid two weeks in. So again, like, seems like we're in the clear and then not in the clear, but it seems like we're making good strides. And then right away, I was back in big trouble. Um, so I would argue that the first 20 days probably required at least 20 medical miracles to keep me alive. So the first one was getting me through the heart attack, which I'll talk about, but then things just kept happening. Um, and I'm able to say now that I probably should have died, but I also don't think that I'll ever truly understand how close I was to death. I think, I think my closest family does because they were seeing me in the hospital. Um, but I don't think that I will potentially ever fully get it. Um, one doctor at the Brigham and Women's, um, and I think I've mentioned this on a Facebook post, 
told the family that I was the sickest person in the entire Brigham and Women's Hospital, but that a full recovery was still possible. Um, I know that that was said to the family because of the full recovery part. But I, I just, when I heard that, that I was the sickest person in all of the Brigham and Women's Hospital, that really hit me and really started to help me understand what exactly my body had been through and what exactly my family had been through. But that's, that's all the bad stuff, right? The, the good news is I completely survived. I completely survived. Um, and like I said, so many things had to go right for that to happen. Um, I don't remember the day of the heart attack. In fact, I'll talk about it, but I don't remember the week leading into the heart attack. But I know now that the morning of the heart attack, I woke up at the Cape. I, I went jogging, which I did all the time at the Cape. I saw my neighbor, I saw Angela and Wendy's daughter, Gigi, on the jog. Apparently, I gave her a nice fist bump on the way by when I was on my run. Makes me think I was feeling good. Um, I came home. I took an outdoor shower, which you can't beat that at the Cape. I put on my bathing suit. I was getting ready for a great day at the beach. As Angelo has told me a million times, it was literally the nicest weather day of the entire summer. Uh, so... For all of those closest to me, I'm really sorry I ruined the nicest weather day of the entire summer. Uh, but I, I, I came back in the cottage. I had my bathing suit on and everything, and apparently I started feeling pains. I don't know if they were in my stomach or my chest, because again, I don't remember the day. But Tegan was there with me. Thank God. Thank God Tegan was there with me. If she wasn't there with me, I don't make it. You know, I'm going to talk a lot about how many things had to go right. The first thing that had to go right was Tegan. She had to be there. And she had to know what to do and know how to respond to this type of moment. Um, she took some pictures of me. She was texting them to Della. She was calling Della. She was asking me how I'm doing. She was relaying questions to me from Della. Um, and then eventually, I think I said to her, you need to go to Angela and Wendy's. I think I need to go to the emergency room. Um, I am positive that what I probably thought was going on was that I had my appendix. I probably... There's no way I assumed I was having a heart attack. I probably assumed that something was wrong with my appendix or that they were exploding. Um, so thankfully, she went and got the neighbors. Now, even though I was in a lot of pain, when I walked to my buddy Angelo's car to go to the emergency room, I brought a bag with me, and it had books in it, and it had stuff in it. Um, I'm sure because I was afraid of a long wait at the emergency room. So even as I walked to the car... I was still with it. I was still, clearly the heart attack had started, but like I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I'm sure I didn't get it. Um, and Angelo said when I got in the car that I was telling him that I'm all right. You know, I got these pains in my stomach, my chest, but I'm all right. But he said he looked at me and I was pale white and that I was really sweating a lot. And he said I didn't, he could tell that I didn't realize I was sweating so much, um, so he knew something big was going on. So we pulled out of our cottage. He lives right next door to us at the Cape, and we were. He was driving towards the, you know, going to go to Falmouth Hospital, and he he only got about 500 yards before we left Moshop Village. I went into complete cardiac arrest, and my body stiffened. Uh, my eyes were wide open, and not blinking. My teeth were clenched. And I guess I was shaking and he, 
he thankfully knew, he kind of understood what he was looking at because he had been in a basketball game when a poor guy had had a similar moment to me and um, Angelo had gone to the guy's duffel bag and looked around for seizure meds because I guess it looks like a seizure. Um, and unfortunately, eventually that guy didn't make it. So again, with all the things that had to go right, thank God Angelo knew what to do for me. He knew that this was major. He knew that my heart was impacted. And so he, he ripped me out of the car. I was actually on a clamshell parking lot and he just went to town doing CPR. Um, that had to happen. Uh, it's, it's such that if I had gone maybe 30 more seconds, maybe 15 more seconds without CPR, I wouldn't have been alive when the ambulance arrived. And Angelo, his name's Angelo. He's my angel. Obviously, I've made this clear, I hope. Um, but he started doing CPR. So then um, an ambulance came. A bunch of other people in the village helped out. That was amazing. Um, I think someone else did CPR the last minute or two. Uh, that's a person um, that I'm just now finding out about and I'm getting in touch with. Some other people called 911. Some people put ice on my neck. Some people held my legs up. I mean, it was a, a it, it literally was a village that saved me that day, uh, led by Angelo knowing what to do right away. Um, I took an ambulance to Falmouth Hospital. Um, from there, it was too much. They transferred me to Hyannis Hospital, Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. Um, and when I was there, uh, an incredible doctor put in a stent to open up my blocked. It was my main artery. It was fully blocked. Um, opened up, put in a stent, which I will now have in me forever to keep that passageway open. And then, even though my heart could now move again or my blood could move again, um, they knew they, they didn't have everything they needed to keep me alive there. So then I took a helicopter um, med flight to Brigham and Women's in Boston which thank God I took that helicopter. Um, it's weird to it's weird to say it was a good thing that I was in this little village on the Cape where there's no cell reception when I had a heart attack, but it's true, I was lucky because uh, Angelo was there who knew what to do. People in the village could help out and then I could get to eventually Hyannis Hospital where there was an incredible doctor to put the stent in. And then they put, they sent me to Boston. I was definitely lucky to be in Boston. Um, and in Boston, you know, I had so many incredible doctors and I've heard, heard a lot of their names. I've met a bunch of them. Dr. Zach, Dr. Edelman, Dr. Verelman, Dr. Kirschenbaum, Dr. Wertheim. I had, a, I had Dr. Edelman who on the day where things turned for the worse, he was on his bike ride home. The hospital called him. He turned his bike around. He came back to help me fight through that terrible moment. He stayed, he told Della he wasn't leaving until she was comfortable, that I was okay. I had Dr. Wertheim, who, when I was trying to, they were trying to extubate me, or no, when, when my lungs filled with fluid, he was the one that did all the ventilator magic, which totally saved my life a few weeks in. Uh, an incredible guy. Dr. Kirschenbaum, who is now my cardiologist, you hear a lot about him in this. Just an incredible, incredible doctor. Dr. Dr. Verelman, who was, I've met, he was the anesthesiologist, which becomes so important in moments like this. When I was brought to Hyannis Hospital, he was across the street eating a sandwich and heard, heard about this situation, came back into work, even though his work day was over. 
You know, it's like we always say doctors are heroes, um, but I'm not sure we always, I'm not, let me say that differently. I never fully understood how selfless they are. I certainly never understood how good they are at communication. Um, and man, was I lucky to have, you know, I've, I've named five. I, I had 50. Um, just amazing. And then same thing with the nurses. I had so many incredible nurses. Um, and especially in the first 20 to 30 days, my family knows them way better than I do. Um, and one that I definitely got a shout out is, is Catherine. Um, Catherine is, I'm sure of it, going to become a lifelong friend of Della. In some of Della's darkest moments, Catherine was there hugging her, helping her through it. Um, and this was so amazing, but um, the doctors work as teams and they include all the caregivers on the team. And when the decision was being made whether or not to extubate me, to get me off the ventilator and allow me to breathe on my own, the team was kind of split on whether my body was ready for it, whether mentally I was ready, whether I had proven to them that I could fight. And if they took me off this thing supporting my lungs and my breathing, that I would take over. And the, the team was kind of split. And it was actually my, my nurse, Catherine, who ended up saying, he's ready. He's responding to me. I know if I'm there, he will fight. He can do it. And then the doctor, I think it was Dr. Kirschenbaum, I'm not sure, but it was. I and, and he went with Catherine's gut feeling and they took me off the ventilator and I took over the breathing. And Catherine, of course, was there by my side making sure I did. Um, and just what an incredible thing. I mean, if you don't get off these ventilators, as we've all learned so much the last couple of years, you know, you got to get off them to, to survive. And, and thank you to Catherine for helping me get off it. Um, Kyle kept a list along the way. And I think the list, it landed somewhere between 80 and 100 people per his estimation and all the medical nurses and doctors that they met that helped save me. And that's just incredible. Um, that's a list I'm forever, forever grateful for. And sort of as I wrap up this, like that part of this story, I just have to mention, there's this one other really weird thing where whenever, when I came to the Cape that weekend, uh, my mom is, if you know her, she reads a, like a book a day. She's like, do you have anything I could read? And I guess I did have a book in my bag, which I gave her. And the book was called one last thing before I go. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's a coincidence. And it was a fiction book, but I just can't believe that on a day where I came that close to dying, the day before I gave my mom a book that said one last, what, that was titled One Last Thing Before I Go. So, you know, moving forward in this episode, I'm going to try to focus on the stuff that I remember. Everything I just mentioned, I don't remember. And I was told. Um, everyone had their own experience of this. So like Della will, will say that because she was bringing Mela to a lacrosse tournament far away when this happened and she had to drive to the Cape knowing I was having this emergency with Mela in the car and all sorts of Saturday morning Cape traffic just it just had to be the most brutal drive ever. But she arrived at Cape Cod Hospital at Hyannis. And like she has this experience of where they were wheeling me from one place to another and she saw me. And she just hit the floor. 
because once she saw me and the condition I was in, she fully understood how at risk I was. And, you know, that that's like just a, one step in this long journey that she had, that is her experience of this. And then the hotel life, the Allens and the Berkeys and my mom and my dad and a lot of others, but the, 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 the main 11 first and foremost stayed at a hotel across the street from the hospital for a month, for over 30 days. Um, had a couple rooms, you know, and then they had Nick coming often and they had Bridget there a ton and the Baresis and the Huffs and so many other people, Beaumont, coming and staying. And, you know, these people would come and they would they would take the kids' minds off things and take them on adventures while Mary Kate, Kyle and Della and my mom and dad and everybody could really focus on me every minute of the day. Um, so this, my family has this whole experience of the hotel life, which is so interesting to me. I don't have that at all. Um, wait, waiting for phone calls, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, the, the first morning, they, Della woke up on Sunday morning and the hospital had called, I had the, the heart attack on Saturday, the hospital had called a bunch of times, she had a bunch of missed calls from the hospital and, you know, I don't want to go too far down this, but like they told, when she called them back, they said, you need to come in right away. And obviously one of the things that went through her mind and everybody else's was that I hadn't made it or that I was about to not make it. Just can't imagine awakening to that phone call. And, and again, all the friends and families that visited, you know, the Wheaton guys, the just everybody I've mentioned, Uncle Rich, you know, so many people came to Boston to help out with things. And they all had their own experience of this. Um, and then all the people that didn't come, but we're still, of course, we're, but we're still waiting for the nightly updates that Kyle and Nick were doing. Uh, they all had their own experience of this. So it's amazing to me how different the stories are, but how many stories there are, frankly. Um, but moving forward in this pod, like I said, I'm, I'm going to be focusing on my memoir, what I remember. Um, as I said, I, I don't remember the week leading into the to the heart attack. My brain wiped out that whole week. I ran a basketball camp, and to say I have foggy memories of it is might be a stretch. Like I have some very distant memories of that basketball camp, but I have nothing concrete. That whole week is gone. I don't remember the day of the heart attack at all. Um, I certainly don't remember the helicopter ride. Some people have asked me that. I have no, no chance. I, my brain has wiped it. Um, you know, Tegan always keeps saying, like, I can't believe you don't remember the swim we took on Friday night. And so Friday, Friday, the day before the heart attack, I drove to the Cape with Tegan and one of my little brothers, Dakai. And so the three of us drove to the Cape. And then that Friday night at the Cape, me, my mom, Tegan, and Dakai went for a late night swim in the moonlight. And I don't remember it, which is just crazy to me. Um, and to be honest, I really don't remember anything from the first 31 days I was in the hospital. I have almost no memory of 31 days in the hospital. Um, so pretty much by our calculations, my brain has wiped out 37 days, the six days leading into the heart attack, the day of the heart attack, and another 30 or so days afterwards are gone. Um, thankfully, other than that, my brain seems really good, uh, uh, which is just another one of the miracles. And just yesterday, had this crazy moment where um, Della and Mary Kate and Kyle 
before I was taken off the um, before I was taken off one of the I don't think it was yeah before I was taken off ECMO um, they took a picture of Della holding my hand in the hospital and what's significant about this picture is this is when I had the most things hooked into me um, and they only took one picture they deleted it from whoever's phone it was they emailed it emailed it to someone to one of them and then deleted it from the phone they didn't want the kids to have any potential of running into this picture um, but I was ready I was ready to see the picture and I'm happy I saw the picture and I'm happy uh, that they got that picture of Della holding my hand and but it's crazy it, it was it was amazing to see how much I was hooked up to and just how many medical miracles were happening to keep me alive um, and you know this thing is hitting me in different waves and some of them are tidal waves and some of them are baby waves uh, but that was another wave to see exactly to see all these machines hooked into me to see how um, swollen I was like I can see my feet and they just look twice their normal size to see my hands I was strapped down to the bells restrained to the bed because if I if they weren't I would be twer tweaking and twerking and I would be uh, I'm sorry twitching I'd be twitching and I'd also be trying to rip the ventilator out so they had to like strap me to the bed uh, so just amazing to see that picture and again just thankful for it um, so you know I've called I one of the things I started saying soon after I like regained consciousness was um, I'm sort of calling the first part of my life act one and then the heart attack in the 31 days I was out were intermission and now I'm starting act two uh, so you know what is act two right and, and what do I remember from the beginning of act two so as I said from days 20 to 30 so I, I kind of woke up in the hospital at least on the outside around day 20 or so and that's when now I wouldn't have my eyes closed all day I might even be sitting up because they would have sat me up or something depending on what was best um, but I, I didn't know what was going on and the joke was that I was watching some squirrel that was running around the room. I didn't actually see a squirrel running around the room, but I did have a lot of groggy memories that started to creep in. Um, one was I, you know, I'm sure they had sports on TV or stuff, and I totally lost my comprehension of sports. I have this, like, vague memory of starting to feel like t football teams were playing with two quarterbacks at the same time. And I was like, how does that work? And and I, the baseball looked completely different to me. And again, it was because I was on so much delirium that I totally didn't understand what was going on with sports. Um, I'm very, very proud of one moment I had where um, I, for a moment, I sort of came to and I saw Della. And it was the really the first words I had spoken since any of this. I just came to for a moment, looked at Della, and I said, I love you. Um, and I'm just so I'm proud of myself that that's the first thing I said. Um, and I'm proud of my emotional side for realizing that. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what had happened. But I saw Della. I knew something wasn't right. And I knew I loved her. Um, I had some extremely vivid dreams um, that I'll never forget. Uh, and there's nothing worse than people telling dream stories. So I won't do that here. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I had some weird dreams, one of which was me and Donro were saving baseball. There's a lot more to it, uh, you know, and uh, 
couple more that were just wacky. And I remember them so vividly. And actually, as I learned more about what was going on around me, a lot of them were connected to things in the room, which was interesting. Um, you may have seen a picture when I went from the CCU to what's called the step-down unit at Brigham Women's, which is a different floor. Um, the step-down unit is, I was there, I think, about two weeks or so. Um, and they brought me outside in a wheelchair on my way from one unit to the next, which was so cool that they did that so that I could see Mela and Tegan and they could see me. And there's a picture of us out there and it was a beautiful day and it was a great moment of like, for the family especially, of like, he's, he's, he's winning, he's doing it. Uh, I don't remember it at all. I'm sitting up in the picture, my eyes are open and I don't remember that at all because again, I was on so much delirium. And the last funny story is once I was in the step-down unit and was still my memory still wasn't there yet because again of all the delirium I was on um I had I I I missed I told Della or I said to Della who of course was by my side I said how was Christmas this year and apparently she was like honey you didn't miss Christmas you were here for Christmas and I just couldn't get to that fact and I was just convinced I had missed Christmas and so of course I told her the first thing I want to watch is Love Actually, um, which if you know me, you know I love and you know I'm overly emotional and in good times when I watch it. Um, and so she she kind of, it, she ended up just saying, okay, you sort of going being like, you missed Christmas. Like, it's okay, honey, you missed it. Here's, let's watch Love Actually. And I was, of course, sobbing throughout Love Actually. Um, and then she ended up getting really nervous that I was like crying too much and it was going to hurt my heart. Uh, so... Days 20 to 30 had to be funny for my family because I was regaining consciousness, but I surely was not there yet. Um, and obviously some funny things happened. All right, so we pick it up around day 31. And this is when I started to come to in the step-down unit. Um, what was this time like? So this is days 31 to 40. This is I'm in the step-down unit at Brigham and Women's. I'm still at risk, but I'm stable. Um, what was this time like? Well, first of all, Della was by my side 12 hours every day, every day. Just so you know, I was in Boston hospitals for 53 days. Della was in Boston all 53 days. The only time she left being within a half mile of me at most was when she drove home to take a quick CPR class. And then, um, as soon as she could, she got right back to Boston. Um, unbelievable, unbelievable. And she was with me 12 hours a day in the step-down unit. Uh, one of the things I remember the most is I still had a tube up my nose. Um, this was how they were um, feeding me, a liquid diet. Uh, this tube drove me crazy. It drove me crazy. I could not wait to get rid of it. In fact, I think at one point I said to Della, if they don't take this out tomorrow, I'm ripping it out myself, which if you know me, I, I listen to doctors. I'm not an arguer. Um, but that's how annoyed I was by this tube in my nose. I also had the two largest blisters I'd ever seen on my heels. They looked, they were purple and blood, and they just looked so gross. It's, it's as many of you know, what led to me having to wear the Crocs, which drove me so crazy. Um, but these blisters, just looking at them was just disgusting. Uh, one of the biggest things from the step-down unit was how bad I wanted to eat. I could not wait to eat. They were sustaining me with this liquid IV diet or whatever it was, but um, 
I was starving and I wanted food and I just wanted to taste things. Um, and so I started asking the doctors, when can I eat? How can I, what can I eat? Um, and it was such a process to be able to eat. Um, so many things had to happen. Um, one of which was I had to have these tests done where I swallowed all these different disgusting things. Um, and all the, while I was swallowing, the doctors were watching on a screen right in front of us. They had an x-ray screen of my like skull and whatever and throat and they were watching how I swallowed. And I was so nervous because I knew I had, everything had to go down the right pathway and everything had to look good for them to approve me to eat. Uh, and the food was so gross that they had to feed me. Um, but anyways, I passed. And after a few days, finally I could eat um, and they took the tube out of my nose, which was just so liberating. Now it's funny because for my family, I had one tube in my nose. They were used to me having 50 tubes in my body. Um, but for me, that one tube was the one I was awake for and it drove me crazy. Um, so then I get to eat and unfortunately, as soon as I start eating, I get totally constipated and it was without, I'll spare you the details, but two days of just misery where I was starving and I was eating, but my body could not, every part of my body shut down. Even my skin, I had all these skin rashes. Every part of my body, it was like a, it was like when you reboot your computer. And when I started eating, now I was rebooting my gut. And at first my gut could not work right and could not break it down. Uh, and after two days of misery, it did. And it's been working ever since, just like everything else, thank God. Um, one of the most miserable hours I had uh, in this, when I was in the step-down unit at Brigham was I had to get another brain MRI. They wanted to check if what the brain looked like now versus two or three weeks ago when I had a brain MRI that I wasn't awake for. I can't believe I slept through a brain MRI, by the way, because if you've ever had one, you're in this tiny tunnel. It is, they put earplugs in, but it is so loud. Um, and I had to do this MRI. I had to wear a mask because of COVID. So you're already claustrophobic, and now I have this mask on. Of course, in my head, I'm thinking, what am I going to get, COVID in the MRI tube? Like, can't I just take the mask off? Um, and I was constipated, so my stomach was killing me. And I, here I am sucked into this tube. With, sounds like I'm in the engine of an airplane. Um, I'll never forget that, uh, that MRI and how happy. I, I, I tried every Buddhist meditation I could to get through it, and I did get through it, but how happy I was when it was over. Um, one of the words I'll never forget, um, one of the words I'll never forget is the word transport. So when I was in Brigham, whenever I was going to have an, a test, an MRI test, a swallow test, any of these different things, they don't do those things in your room. So they would have to order transport and transport would be a guy or a, a, a man or a woman who would just come get you and wheel you down and you'd, you'd go on this like utility elevator and then you, you would just feel, it would almost feel like a Michael Myers movie. Like I'd be looking up and it'd be all these neon lights as they wheel me down some hallway. And it was always colder down there. And I'm with a stranger and Della's not allowed to come with me. And then they just drop you in the lobby of whatever test you're getting. And, you know, you sometimes you're next to someone who's unconscious. You're next to another person who's writhing in pain. And, you know... It's just the weirdest thing. And then you just sit there. And it's not even like you can you interact with the hostess or, 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 the, or the lobby worker. Like You just wait until someone else comes and grabs you and takes you in for the test. And then when the test is over, they put you back in the waiting room. 
and you don't know when you're going to leave. You're just waiting for transport. So Dell and I were always laughing about transport. It was like, oh, it wasn't the most pleasant part of the hospital experience. Um, another thing I remember from days 31 to 40 is how skinny I was. Um, I generally weigh right around 150 or so. When I woke up and was starting to fight back, I was at 120. Um, Della, I mean, I looked like Skeletor. There's some pictures where my legs, I said I had a fifth grade boy's legs. They just looked tiny. Um, and Della would laugh because it was like, when I was in the most at-risk time, she said, I look like Nutty Professor. I look like a different human being because I was so bloated. Um, and then I ended up looking like Skeletor. Um, another thing that I don't remember as much, but the family tells me is that I just had no concept of privacy. Like I was just in my hospital, hospital gown for, for especially the first few days I was awake and just, I didn't understand what privacy was. I was just, uh, <laughs> I guess staying comfortable. Um, I also remember morning rounds, you know, I'd get woken up pretty early in the morning for different medications and things. I mean, obviously I was taking so many meds even today. I'm still taking 15 pills a day, uh, but those are my miracle workers, those pills now. So it's no problem from my perspective. But morning rounds and uh, Dr. Dio was an incredible cardiologist and he had a team with him. And, you know, they would come in so early in the morning and sort of start to tell me about how I'm doing. And then I would always ask him to come back when Della was going to be there um, so that she could get the story in the news as well. But I'll never forget those morning rounds and this crew of guys coming in. Um, and you know, I was a little different. Like you hear of so many people that as they get older, um, they get sort of defensive when doctors look younger than them, right? They sort of, they're, they get less trusting. And I, I was the opposite. Like I was extreme, thankfully, you know, Dr. Kirschenbaum, Dr. Edelman, these, these doctors that are older than me, of course, they're, they're incredible. They've been amazing. But Dr. Dio, I don't know how old he was, but in his team and some other doctors looked my age or younger, and I loved it when they were that age too. I just had full trust, so I was, I was happy that I, I always trusted doctors because it was a good way to feel. Um, when I was in the step-down unit, that's when I started to learn how to walk. Um, I had a walker. You know, I started by taking two steps. I couldn't even get from my bed to the bathroom, um, but... Uh, you know, eventually I could walk down the hall with my walker. Eventually I could take a couple steps without the walker. And I just wanted to walk so bad that I wasn't, wasn't great at following the rules then. Um, I, I wanted to go to the bathroom on my own, be able to get from my bed to the bathroom. Um, I just wanted to be able to walk. Uh, but it was so weird relearning to walk. I can't tell you how hard it was. Uh, and it came quick for me, really everything in this process has come quick for me relative to what I've been through. But learning to walk was something I didn't expect to be doing at age 43. Um, ice chips. I'll never forget the hospital ice chips. Before they were letting me have real food, I could have a, an ice chip. And they told Della that I could only have one chip of ice every 20 minutes. So I would so, because my throat was so raw from all the things that, all the tubes that had been in my throat, I just couldn't, I, I would have eaten an ice chip every minute if I could. Um, and at one point, I think I said to Kyle, get her out of here. And he was like, he thought I was upset with Della. And he's like, what do you, what do you want me to get her out of here for? And 
I wanted her to get out of there because she was following the rules and only giving me one ice chip every 20 minutes, and I wanted more ice chips. Um, so this is another time that Catherine came to my rescue. She came down to visit me, Nurse Catherine, and um, I actually... I, I like said something, I think I like swore about how hungry I was and how bad I wanted to eat. And she got really pumped up because she, you know, she, she'd just seen me completely asleep and bloated and she could sense who I was from the family. But she was so happy to hear me like fighting for myself that she made these like tiny frozen juices, put them in the freezer, showed Della where they were, and they started letting me lick like these mini popsicles and when i tell you that was heaven on earth that was heaven on earth frozen apple juice frozen cranberry juice that got me through the last day or two where i couldn't eat i just couldn't stop i just loved tasting um and eventually once i could eat i'll never forget the milkshakes they brought me a milkshake every day to help me regain my weight and i loved the milkshakes um it's funny because when i was in the step down unit I was still dealing with different types of pain, as I've mentioned, and different learning to walk and learning to go to the bathroom and all these things. Um, but for my family, these things were all minor. So here I was struggling through them because I was awake at this point. But for them, this this was laughable because they were just so happy I was alive. Uh, really cool dynamic that we were dealing with um, and really interesting. So I had... Um, a couple visits that I want to acknowledge from the step-down unit. Um, you know, Mary Kay, Kyle, Della every day, of course. Um, but my mom spent at least a day in there with me. My dad spent at least a day in there with me. Um, Nana, Linda spent a day in there with me. Um, and all of those days were really special, and it was really nice to have other people around. And it was really interesting just to see, especially with my mom, my dad and Linda, I, I, I felt bad for them. I, 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 there's no other way to explain it. They should not have to deal with this type of thing at their point in life, right? I'm lucky they're all around. And Papa as well, who, by the way, Papa, best texter of this entire experience. No one was more positive, more uplifting, and more loving on text every day than my man Vinny. Um, but anyways, so the visits, the days, the visits from them were amazing, but I also just felt bad because just seeing a mother and a father and Linda's become, you know, just as close with me and just seeing them having to cope with how close they came to losing me and just then seeing me, you know, in, in this moment and how frail I was and how different I looked and, you know, they all dealt with it differently, of course, and they all were part of my recovery, but those visits were special and they were interesting as well. Um, Dr. Edelman came down to visit me, which was amazing knowing this guy who had been the doctor that helped me get through the first few weeks. It was amazing meeting him. Uh, Dr. Kirschenbaum came down to visit and I'll never, I fully remember, I my, my room was cool and the step down, I had a bed with a TV, but then I also had a couch with another TV. Um, and by the way, I had this big window that looked out across the street to the other Brigham and Women part of the hospital. And one thing that was really weird, which I should mention, is the helicopter landing pad was viewable from my window. 
So that was tough for me and Della on all those 12-hour days because anytime someone would come in on a helicopter, we would hear the helicopter and we would see it go down to land. We couldn't see anybody getting out of it, but um, that was just a constant reminder of how close I had been to not making it. Anyways, Dr. Kirschenbaum came to visit me and I was sitting up on the couch and he sat next to me on the couch and I remember him just looking at me. It was one of the first times, I'll talk more about this, but he looked at me as if I was a miracle. He was just marveling. I could just see in his eyes alone that he couldn't believe I was sitting there and I was sitting up and I was skinny and I wasn't hooked up to a million things. And um, I will never, ever forget. Um, sorry. I'll never, ever, ever forget the moment I said to him, I would love it if you would be my cardiologist moving forward. And his response was, it would be my honor. And, oh man, that floored me. Literally, one of the best cardiologists in the world. Okay, sorry. And that was definitely a moment. I told you some waves hit me, right? So I, that was definitely a moment where I, I just felt so good. I just knew if I'm meant to live, I'm going to live because... This guy is going to do everything he can. So those are my big memories from days 31 to 40. Um, you know, every memory I have, Della, of those days, Della's there with me 12 hours a day. As soon as she would leave, I would want her to come back. Um, and, you know, I, I just was never alone in this whole process because I was always with Della. And a lot of other people were giving their days to me as well. But literally, I was always with Della. Oh, thank God for Della. All right, so then I get the ultimate transport, which is I, I ride in an ambulance from Brigham and Women's Hospital to um, Spalding. And I'm in Spalding from days 40 to 53. Of course... You know, so the, the transport out of Brigham and Women's is so emotional because this just feels like another step towards survival and recovery. And um, there's two guys that drive me. Della sits up front with one of them, and I sit in the back. Of course, both of them have Malden connections. Whenever you're on that side of the state and you're talking to anybody that's just like a normal person, <laughs> not, no, that's not the, that's the wrong way to say it, but blue collar, like just quote unquote normal people. Somehow they always have a Malden connection for us, which is wild. Um, and of course these two guys did. And I was just so excited to breathe fresh air. I had been in the hospital for uh, 40 days at this point. I hadn't breathed fresh air since the moment I got in Angelo's car um, when I was having the heart attack. Um, so then we go to Spalding. Now what's really funny about Spalding is I have like a deep emotional connection to Spalding and all the people at Spalding. But my family, way less so. Their deep emotional connection is to Brigham and to all the people, especially that were in the CCU with me. Um, 
but you know, Spalding was where I was, I was completely with it at this point, And I was still on a heart monitor at all times that, you know, was around my neck and plugged into my chest. And the nurses at the nurse's station stared at my heart all day, every day. And there was a monitor outside my room, which had my heart functioning, showing on the monitor. So it wasn't like I was in the clear, but certainly I was with it and it was time to start recovery. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about this being my heart attack memoir, Spalding was a huge part of that. And thank God I was at Spalding. I think I talk about this more later, but I never, Spalding is like, I think it's ranked the second best rehabilitation hospital in the country. And I never would have got in there without Kyle Berkey. Kyle Berkey got me in there. And I am so thankful to him for doing that. All right, so Spalding. What are my memories of Spalding? Well, it was Dr. Schneider was great. Dr. Safalo was great. There was two female doctors that worked with me. I can't remember their names. They were phenomenal. Um, this one... You know, one of the things I'll talk about on the emotional side, but one of the things I had to deal with is like everybody looked at me like I was a miracle. And at first that was awesome because I was coming to grips with the fact that I was a miracle. But then I was alive and I just wanted to start to start living again. And sometimes it was hard for me when nurses or doctors or people would look at me like I was a miracle. Like I just wanted to be looked at like a person. Um, and I remember at Spalding, it was like a Saturday morning and, you know, these different doctors would come and go from your room to check on you. And this female doctor came in and she just was like this aura. Like, and if you, if you told me this doctor didn't even exist and she was a figment of my imagination, I would believe that. I would believe that. Um, because I think she was only there on weekends. And anyway, she came in and she just looked at me differently. She just looked at me like, yo man, you're alive. Like, you did it, and you're going to work out today to bring your body back, but you're alive. You did it. Um, and that doctor was great. I wish I remembered her name. Um, but one of the things, I started to tear up when I was with her, and uh, one of the things that she, um, she said to me was she said, you know, I had a medical emergency in my 40s. She said, and now I'm in my 60s. And I'm living a great life. She said, and I'm a miracle. And she said, you experienced a miracle as well. But now you're just going to live. You're just going to have a great life. And you did it. And geez, I'm sorry. Um, and that was just such a good message. I mentioned this before, but like, I never realized, like for doctors, you know, half of their job is understanding things medically that the average brains can't understand. But the other half of their job is this ability to communicate, like just across the board communicate so well, it's amazing. Um, there was another female doctor that was with me at Spalding and she could tell I had a lot of anxiety around my heart and she could tell, and I'll talk more about my emotions shortly, but she could, she could see 
that even though my body was recovering, I still needed to mentally accept what had happened and and not live in fear, you know, minute to minute of every day. And she just gave me this great strategy. Like she said, you meditate. And I said, I do meditate, you know, small time, small intervals, but I do meditate and I do think about mindfulness and all of that a lot. And uh, she said, I want you to take a deep breath. And she said, I want you to do this a lot every day. And she said, when you breathe in, I want you to say in this breath, when you breathe out, I want you to say, I am safe. And again, I'm sure she told me stuff about my heart rate. I'm, I'm sure she talked, I was having arrhythmias, sort of abnormal heart beats, which a lot of people have. They're not scary, but it's scary to hear anything about your heart. I'm sure she talked about my arrhythmias. I'm sure she talked to me about a million things. But the most important thing she did was give me that breathing strategy of, in this breath, I am safe. And it just... Man, did it put me at ease. Man, did it put me at ease. Um, so uh, two more people that I got to mention from Spalding. One of them was a nurse named Esther. Esther was Filipino-American. She was um, a little bit older. Her kids were growing up. Um, and she worked basically the 3 to 11 shift. And she was the best. Um and the way my family feels connected to Catherine, that's how I felt connected to Esther. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so growing up, I had a woman that took care of us um, named Anna. She was a German-American, and she was wonderful, but she was tough. And, you know, in a good, and it was perfect for me. She, As I was getting young and my, my parents were going to work, um, she would come over and watch me and watch Mary-Kate and you know, she, she just had this way about her where she was loving and sort of matter of fact. And I love that. I love it. And Esther, carbon copy. Um, I had all these wounds, you know, in, in Spalding. And even when I got home, I had to have all these special, you had to clean them, sterilize them put medicine on them, redress them, you had to do it every day. I had the blisters on my ankles or on my heels. Those had to be sterilized and clean and all this. And, you know, like Esther would just come in and she'd be like, all right, what do we got to do this? We got to do that. We'll do that after dinner. We'll do this now. How you doing? Talk to Della. How's she doing? You know, I would, of course, ask how she's doing. Um, and there just was this... Esther just had this no-nonsense love about her as a nurse. And I don't know. I, I needed her at Spalding. And I'm so happy she was there. Oh, okay, so let me try to get through this next person without crying. Because that would... Crying about this next person would go against our relationship. Um, 
my occupational therapist for the most part while I was there. Every day at Spalding, you would have three one-hour therapy sessions, one physical therapy, one occupational therapy, and then one of the same thing over again, so another PT or another OT. Um, and my OT, who was consistent the whole time, was a young guy named Trevor. And he was a blessing to me because I, I bought into being in the hospital. You know, um, I thought a lot about my grandfather and all his days at the soldier's home and all my visits. And one thing I respected about him was you would get to the soldier's home to visit him. And you would never complain about the soldier's home. And, you know, you hear and you see so many people that once they have to go into one of these facilities, they just complain about the facility. It's like what drives them every day is complaining about where they are. My grandfather was the opposite. He's like, I live at the soldier's home. I love the soldier's home. And he would rave about some good meal they served. And he would tell me about two nurses he liked. And, you know, the nurses would come in and they would ask him questions. And he would ask them questions. He would interact with them about them. It wasn't just about him. It was equally about them. And I remember seeing him in that time of his life and just being like, that's how you got to do this. You got to buy into where you are. And so I took that with me and I practiced that for sure at both Brigham and Women's when I woke up and at Spalding. Um, and so, you know, I was way younger than most of the people I interacted with at Spalding. And there was a kid's floor, so believe me, there was people a lot worse off than me. But on the floor I was on, I was way younger than most people. And when I went to the gym for my workouts, I was way younger than most people. And so I, I've been joking ever since that it's my new demographic, right? Like I, I don't have the heart of a 43-year-old anymore. I have the heart of a 75-year-old, and that's fine. My heart's, my heart's gonna be fine. But it's my new demographic. But one thing that helped bring me back at Spalding was Trevor. Because he he was a lot younger than me, but he was of my demographic. And in my opinion, I'm sure he thought of me as older. But um, So going to be with Trevor was going to talk about the Patriot season, going to talk about sports, going to talk about the new Drake album, talking about the new Kanye album. Like, that was like it was so healthy in my day to get an hour or two with someone that we could talk music, talk sports. You know, there's so many things that help bring you back. And those moments with Trevor would help bring me back. Now, I need you to understand. Um, I need you to understand that like I was doing weird things with Trevor, right? Like he had me practicing grocery shopping. Like literally they have a fake grocery store, you know, and this is rehab and I have a basket and he's telling me what to grab and I'm grabbing it. At one point he had me practice standing up and getting into the bathtub. Um, another time he had me practice pouring water. So we, I had to fill a, I had to fill a pitcher with water and he had all these cups and I had to pour the water. Um, he had me doing all sorts of fine motor skills. So, it, like, I'm with him doing these things that I never thought that I would have to do. But we're talking, again, about the new Kanye album. And it's just so, I was just so happy to have these conversations, um, which was great, um, which were great. Um, so a huge shout out and thank you to Trevor. 
A um, couple things I looked forward to there is like with PT, I every every few days or every week, I would have to do the six-minute walking test. And this is like literally for six minutes, you just walk from one line to another back and forth as fast as you can um, to see if you're gaining the ability to walk a greater distance in six minutes. So I'll never forget I never would have thought I'd be excited for the six-minute test. You know, I used to strive for six-minute miles, six-and-a-half-minute miles. Now I'm doing the six-minute walking test. Um, but I loved that. Um, and then uh, the stairs. I finally, I started by using, in the gym there, using these this thing where you walk up three stairs and then walk down three stairs. It's like a thing in the gym to pra practice stairs. And it was so hard at first to even take one stair. But then, you know, once I got better at it, I would start saying to the people that brought me down there to the gym, it was on the second floor, I'm pretty sure I was on the fourth, um, I would ask that we take one flight of stairs on the way back up and eventually two flights and just climbing stairs. It was like climbing Mount Everest, but it felt so good to me to, to start to be able to do that. Um, another thing that was funny that, and Trevor was working on this a lot with me, what is, but I had all these side effects when I came, you know, things that when I got to Spalding, I had like my sight, my vision was nowhere near as good as normal. I couldn't read a book because it just looked blurry. Um, I had a serious tremor. So like if you watch me eat, I looked like a 95 year old with my tremor. Um, in fact, they gave me a weighted fork. They had me start eating with a weighted fork so it helped control the tremor. Um, I had, I still to this day have like numbness in my thigh where like if I rub my right thigh, it just doesn't feel normal. It feels numb and tingly. And my, whereas my left thigh, the sensation is normal. Thankfully, almost all of these things went away. The sight got a vision got a lot better. The tremor is pretty much gone. Uh, but I'll never forget using a weighted fork. Um, also, I'll never forget hospital socks. They give you these hospital socks and I became oddly attached to the hospital socks. They were like the old tote socks with grips on the bottom. Uh, and, you know, I'd wear these socks for like two or three days because at first at Spalding, I still wasn't able to shower. Um, it, actually, Trevor had to reteach me how to shower. Once I finally, and I'd have to take the heart monitor, all that stuff off and learn how to shower again. And I'd be in a seated chair while I showered. Uh, that was wild learning that. Um, I had to meet with, I had to do cognitive tests at Spalding. I had to, I had a psychologist come meet with me. I had a spiritual advisee come meet with me and I know that they were sort of assessing me and I'm, I'm lucky because cognition, psychology, and spiritual never came back except once. So I'm guessing they, they, whatever they were assessing, I guess I was in good shape because they never came back. Um, but I, I will say the psychologist was important because she got me cleared to go outside. At first at Spalding, I still couldn't go outside because my heart monitor was wireless, of course, to the, to the, to the computers and it wouldn't work if I was outside. Um, but she realized how nervous I was about going home and not being on this hospital heart monitor. So she got me cleared to go outside for an hour a day, um, to be off monitor for an hour a day to start to prepare my brain for not being on a hospital heart monitor. Uh, one thing I'll never forget Spalding is they would wake me up at 6 a.m. in the beginning to weigh me and they wouldn't use the bed, which had a built-in scale. They would put me in a wheelchair and bring me down the hallway because I wasn't really ready to walk at 6 a.m. Um, to weigh me. And 
was so tough because I'm like, I just need sleep. Everybody keeps telling me sleep is so important. Why am I getting up at 6 a.m. to get weighed? It's so annoying. But if, uh, finally, I said, then why am I getting weighed at 6 a.m.? Can I get weighed at 9 a.m.? Like, what's the difference? And then they switched my time, which was good. Um, and the other thing that I had to learn was constantly in the middle of the night, a nurse would come in and have to put the light on to switch the batteries in my heart monitor. Um, and so eventually, I just started saying to the whoever was there last before I tried to go to sleep, I'd say, can you get me some fresh batteries for my heart monitor? Uh, Cause man, even on good nights in the hospital, you get woken up three or four times. So I started to understand which times I could eliminate, you know, if I just put in new batteries, if I just didn't get weighed at 6am. Uh, so that was, that was funny. Um, I'll never forget from Spalding my window. I had a huge window. Um, and it looked out into Charlestown over, over like this naval building, which is now like offices and stuff. And if I looked to the left, I could see Boston Harbor. Uh, and it was just beautiful. And I had this like reclining chair. One thing I got good at is I would get out of bed in the morning and I wouldn't get back into bed until the night. I would either sit on this couch I had or I'd sit mostly on this reclining chair. I could see the, see the harbor. I could see boats coming and going. And I even liked looking over the just the day-to-day -day life of all the buildings that were straight out ahead of me. And I could see the Zakem Bridge. Uh, and, you know, as you get older, you just appreciate other things. And my aging process, at least at that point, was certainly accelerated. And I just liked looking at people jogging by or walking their dog or, you know, it just it felt good seeing life. I wasn't in life yet like I normally was, but I felt good seeing it. Um, Another thing I'll never forget is Spalding is I started to FaceTime with friends and family. So when Della would leave, she'd have to leave at 8 p.m. They were much more strict about visiting hours at Spalding. So it was 12 to 8. Um, sometimes she could get in a little early, but it was basically an eight-hour visiting day. So Della was there, 12 to 8. Um, and But when she would leave, in order for me not to get sad that she had to leave, I would immediately FaceTime somebody. And that was great. Uh, great conversations. And, and I, and it was so unique because people would be so happy to talk to me on FaceTime. And it's not like people aren't happy to talk to everybody, but like, I only got to have that first conversation with people once. And I'm still doing that to this day, seeing people I haven't seen yet. Uh, and it's so cool to see them so excited to see me. Uh, it's, it's just really unique, really something I never thought I'd experience. Um, one thing I remember from Spalding is I made my my uh, my heart attack playlist. So I was excited to make my first playlist. I haven't shared it with the world, but it, the heart attack playlist. And it was a bunch of songs that sort of made me feel spiritually good, um, including a new Kanye song called Make Me New Again. Uh, can't believe I put a Kanye uh, Donda song on there, but that song was perfect for how I was feeling. Um and then a big joke at Spalding was I was striving to be independent. It's really big when you get, you have like a whiteboard with all the details about you. And when you get your OT and PT to designate you independence, you get a big I. And that means you can go to the bathroom without waiting for a nurse to watch you. And you can walk around your room without needing a nurse. And I was always striving to be independent. And I finally got there. Um, and... Um, Last couple of things from Spalding that I remember. Um, MK stayed in Boston with Della. They lived, thank you to Wendy and the Allegroni family, they lived in um, one of Wendy's brother's condos in the North End. They could walk to Spalding. Absolutely amazing. 
Della would come in every day from 12 to 8. Mayla, on, I'm sorry, Mary-Kate on most days would come over around 4 or 5. And she would um, be with me and Della um, the last few hours. Uh, that was just great. It was just a great rhythm to the day. Like, I'd have a nice morning, frankly, to myself. And I'd be listening to music. I, I didn't watch nearly as much TV as you would expect. I watched, of course, a lot of sports. But I'd be listening to music, um, listening to podcasts, thinking. Um, and then Della would come in and we'd have four or five hours of talking about things, laughing, asking questions of doctors and nurses, you know, eating lunch, that kind of thing. And then just when, you know, you need something else, Mary Kate would walk in. And if you know Mary Kate, like she's excited to see a friend or family member on a Tuesday night in March, right? So to see me every day for her was just an absolute miracle. She would just bring with her this spirit of like, we are so lucky. We are so blessed. And um, that was awesome. And then the last memory I'll say from Spalding was you're only allowed two visitors, but we got permission on a Sunday or a Saturday to have Della bring Mela and Tegan. And, you know, it's funny. That wasn't like an exciting day. Like we were just, we just sat in my room for like eight hours um, or six, seven hours. Uh, I guess probably eight hours. And I think we may have gone outside for my time outside, but like that was just, I think it was probably one of the best days of my life. Um, you know, Mayla sat in a chair in my room, Tegan laid in my bed because it was one of those ones that could recline and come up and all that. And we just talked and it was just normal, you know, from Tegan making us laugh to me and Mayla just talking about sports to, you know, at one point Tegan took a nap. It just, the normalcy of that day was the beauty of that day. And he, these were my kids that hadn't been with me, save for that 10 minutes outside when I didn't know where I was. They hadn't been with me in over 40 days. And, oh, they just came in with such grace and such, such strength. And it was beautifully normal. It's amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. And, you know, I should mention now that I'm thinking about it, like, Nick and his family came to Spalding, and I was up on the roof deck with when I couldn't go out front yet, but I could go on the roof deck, um, they waved to me and we had a visit from roof deck to floor, to, you know, um, the land, the ground, uh, the Berkeys came and, um, I love this comment, like by, by Ben Berkey, the youngest Berkey, five years old. Um, we were, I was down, I was outside in the front at this point and still really COVID safe, but we, they wore masks and the Berkey boys got to give me a hug. I was in my wheelchair for the first week and a half that I was there. When I went outside, I, I went in my wheelchair so as not to stress my heart. And um, Ben Berkey, after giving me a hug and leaving, said to Mary Kate, his mother, um, said, um, this is the best day of the summer. Because he got to hug me. Ugh, that's my man. 
Uh, so those those are the biggest memories from my 13 days at Spalding, which were amazing. So believe it or not, now I'm going to talk about my emotions <laughs> while I was in the hospital. That was supposed to be the easy part. That was just the memories of days 31 to 53. Um, but let me try to summarize from my memoir here some of the emotions. So these are the emotions I had those days that I was awake, both in Brigham and in Spalding. Um, first thing, every day was a roller coaster of emotions for me personally. Like sometimes I'd be so high and sometimes I'd be pretty low, you know. Um, I, I constantly had this feeling of just incredible surprise that this had happened. I couldn't, it took a while for me to understand and, and so maybe maybe a better word is to accept that this had happened like I just couldn't believe that I had almost died and that I had had a massive heart attack and cardiac arrest and been on life support and been on events and all you know I just couldn't I'm just surprised that this had happened I had incredible thankfully so I have I have, I have gratitude for the feeling that was always with me which was gratitude for the love and support I was getting. I constantly in the hospital felt thankful for the hospital, for the people taking care of me, for Della, for my family, for the broader network of friends who were coming to visit or just coming to be near me. Um, you know, the Wheaton, the Wheaton guys doing a weekend in Boston, freaking Pete flying in for it and just going to dinner near the hospital. And then I don't know if I was going to mention this later. I should have mentioned it. They came when I was still in Brigham, and they went on the top, a bunch of my Wheaton buddies went on the top of a parking garage that I could see from a window in the hallway at Brigham, and I went to the window and waved to them, and they were on top of the parking garage. You know, most of them were just waving at me and smiling and waving their arms. Pete Butler, being Pete Butler, decided it felt right to do jumping jacks. <laughs> so he started doing jumping jacks when he saw me. Um, and then we FaceTimed. And, you know, and then just the broader level of support from Timmy Strong and Burson Park and um, all my friends and family and my students. And, you know, all of that mattered so much. Why did it matter? Because every day I was in the hospital fighting for my life and then fighting to regain, recover my life, I felt gratitude. I felt gratitude for all the love and support. Um, another emotion I felt often was just a constant fear of it repeating itself, um, of me just having another heart attack. Um, and that's the fear that I'm going to talk more about, but that I'm going to have to live with the rest of my life. And I'm going to learn how to have to, and I have been learning how to live with that fear. You know, it's not my job to get rid of that fear. It's my job to learn to live with that fear. Um, and, I'm, I'm living with that fear better now than I was a week ago, and that was better than a month ago. And But in the hospital, I constantly had that fear of repeat. Um, another thing I had to deal with is I was constantly learning new things about what I went through, you know, every day. Up until, I mean, even yesterday, when I'm seeing this, first time seeing a picture of myself on everything. Like, so much happened to me that the family can't possibly tell me all of it. So that was an emotion I had to deal with. It was like every day I knew I'd learned something new that I hadn't learned about something that had happened to me. So when do you do that in life? When do you learn about something that happened to you? When does it take as long as it did um, to learn all these things? So that was an emotion I had to deal with. I already touched on this, but like the, the emotion of people always looking at me like I'm a miracle. 
especially hospital staff, because they understood medically what I'd been through. I had to, that was an emotion I had to deal with. And I'm much, I'm fully through that. And if people look at me now like I'm a miracle, it's fine with me. Uh, but it was, it was, for a while, it was weird to always be looked at that way. Um, and I had to get used to it. I certainly had brief moments of why me, you know? Um, what the heck? I, I, I've been pretty healthy. I had a strong heart. I, my cholesterol levels were always fine. I worked out all the time. I was healthy. Why me? You know, but one of the things I was really lucky about is the why me moments were fleeting. They were quick. They didn't last long. Um, because quickly the gratitude would, would take it over. You know, the fact that only 12% of people survive what I survived, um, would immediately make me just say, there's just no time to wallow in why me. A lot of people have a moment like this in their lives unexpectedly and they don't make it and that's it for their life. And here I am in act two. So I did have why me moments, but they were fleeting. Um, and I also, a big, a big emotion I felt was despite the fact that I'm recovering, am I broken? You know, and many of the people, many of you listening to this probably saw my update this week about my ECMO, my, my echo, I'm sorry, my echo cardiogram and you know how my heart is at, is functioning at a stable level, which is great. Um, that the part of my heart that was damaged, like part of it is damaged forever. It's never going to get better. But the rest of my heart looks great. And my medications are helping and my heart's functioning, right? So the answer to that question is, no, I'm not broken. I'm not. People live with hearts like mine a long time. Um, but in the hospital, especially, there was, I, I constantly was dealing with this, like, even though I made it, even though I'm a miracle, am I broken, right? So like, I would constantly think about like a car that like has a bunch of issues all of a sudden and your mechanic gets it to keep driving. But when you're driving it, you just know like this car is, it's with me, it's here, but I probably should start saving for a new car because this isn't going to last much longer. You know, sort of a car on its last leg. And that's how I, that was what I was worried about. Am I on my last leg? Did they, did they patch me up and fix me up and I'm able to learn to walk again and eat again and all this? But I'm, but I, there's not long for me, and that was a fear I had to deal with. Am I broken? Am I broken? I had to overcome that. No, the answer is no, I'm not broken. Um, but that was an emotion I had to deal with in the hospitals, especially. Another emotion is you just you turn to faith, right? I started praying more than ever. Um, somebody sent me rosary beads, um, and I just I, I kept them in my pocket, or a lot of the, a lot of times during the day I just held them. Um, so turning to faith and I wasn't the only one, the family started going to church much more frequently. Um, my dad went to daily mass near Brigham and women's, you know, everybody, when you have faith and times get tough, you can't help but turn to it more. Um, and I certainly turned to it more and I'm glad I did. Um, the emotion again of feeling bad for my mom and my dad and Linda and Vinny and there's these people that are a generation above me just felt bad for what they were going through for someone a generation below them. It's just not how anybody wants it to happen. And that I thought about them a lot, and I, I just felt bad. Um, I thought a lot about, or I felt a lot of, of need for Mary-Kate and Kyle. Um, this was an, actually, it was an actual emotion I was having. You know, 
I've always loved Mary-Kate and Kyle. I've always appreciated them. I've always enjoyed them. If you know me, you know we live our lives completely interconnected day to day. But the new emotion was I needed them. I needed them. I needed Mary-Kate to show up and bring appreciation of life and appreciation of me and of spirit and of energy. I needed her. I needed her almost every day. Um, and then I needed Kyle. Kyle was taking care of everything. You know, he was taking care of all five kids most days. He was taking care of all the medical phone calls I needed to have taken care of. He was taking care of all the insurance phone calls. As I said, he got me into Spalding. Um, he had everything running. And Kyle and I pride ourselves on keeping everything running. I couldn't do anything. I needed him to keep things running. And I also needed Kyle for friendship. So not only did I need him for logistics, I needed him for friendship. I needed him to come visit when the logistics allowed him to come visit and just be my boy, just be my guy. And he was that. So it was really weird. It was a really weird emotion to, to just need them, to just need them. Um, and I, I felt that every day. Uh, and one thing I'm proud of is once I finally could, my sight was good enough to get on a computer and my energy was such that I could do something on a computer, the first thing I did, the first logistical thing I did in the hospital, if you know me, you know I like to balance doing a lot of things. The first thing I did was go online and buy Kyle a present online. And that was on purpose. That was like in response to my needing him for logistics and friendship. The first logistic I took care of was to buy my friend something. And I remember feeling so happy that that was the first thing I did. If you're wondering what I got him, I bought him a Chelsea Lukaku jersey. Um, which is our new striker, who's been awesome. Um, and then, of course, another emotion I had was just love for Della. Um, she's always been my best friend. She's always, we've always had a great relationship. Uh, but as I'm sure many of you realized in the Facebook posts, like Della just single-handedly got me through this and didn't allow me to experience any of it on my own. It's so fitting that in the one picture that's taken of me on ECMO and everything else, that Della's holding my hand in the picture. It's not a picture of me. It's a picture of us. And that's a microcosm of this whole journey. It's been us. And even now, she's home with me. Like, it's just been us. So I just love her. I wouldn't be here if she hadn't made this an us moment. I needed this to be an us moment, and she made it completely an us moment. Another emotion I certainly had was appreciation of my daughters. I mean... When my daughters started middle school and high school, they had only seen me twice. Once Again, one of them was short-lived. They'd only seen me twice in the 45 or so days leading up to them waking up at home without me or mom, getting themselves ready on their own, making their lunches for the first day of school. And they went to school, they knocked it out of the park, as always, and... It was awful being away from them. But I get the sense that like when your kids go to college, like you're worried about them, but you're also so proud of them and you're marveling at the fact that 
they're out there in the world doing their thing without you. And I don't want my kids to go to college anytime soon. I'm glad I have four years left with her, three and a half years left with Mayler, and six and a half years left with Tegan before college. But this was a little bit like that. And I just appreciated so much that these daughters I'm raising were able to deal with what I was going through and deal with everything else a sixth grader, ninth grader deal with. And they just did it. Just did it. And I feel like that's the ultimate goal. We want our kids to be able to just do life on their own in a positive way. And my kids had to put that into practice earlier than I thought they would, but they did it. And that emotion, that my, I would sit in Spalding Hospital, and especially and just have this emotion of appreciating Mayla and Tegan and how awesome they are. Um, another emotion I had every day was sadness. And I would cry. I cried every day that I was cognizant in the hospital. Every day. A day didn't go by that I didn't cry. Me and my buddy Bruno talk all the time about how healthy it is to cry. And I cry a lot in real life. So this wasn't completely abnormal. But I cried every day in the hospital. And one of the things I cried about the most was how close I was to death. And it wasn't a selfish cry. It was thinking about Mayla and Tegan growing up the rest of their lives without me. And anytime I thought about how close it was to them living without me, I cried. Um, that was a healthy cry. I wasn't upset I was crying. I, I needed to cry those tears about the closeness to death in order to then accept it and move forward. Um, most of my tears I cried were tears of joy and gratitude. Um, so every day I would be overwhelmed with gratitude for living and for the love and support I was getting and it would lead to tears whether it was because I listened to a song whether it was because I read a quote or you know something that connected I every day I would cry and sometimes it'd be over sadness but more often it was over gratitude um and it always felt good to cry uh you know I've always known I don't know if I always knew this but one thing I learned is you can cry tears of sadness and joy at the same time. And that's one of the things I was doing in the hospital is I was crying tears of sadness and joy at the same time. Uh, you know, one, I got one text in the hospital that'll always stick with me that brought me emotions and I read a lot. I got this text, this was the text I got from a friend. After a major health event, folks tend to adjust their priorities, make amends with those they have wronged, understand people better, and treat the world better. Luckily, you don't need to deal with anything listed here because you have always been your awesome self to all. That text, I, I read almost every day that I was in the hospital. It, uh, it's a little hyperbolic, you know, um, for sure. But this text brought me a lot of peace um, about Act 1, right? Because a lot of times in the hospital, I would be sitting there thinking about Act 1, and I would reflect on how I had lived Act 1. And this text made me feel good about how I had lived Act 1. And, you know, I was enjoying my intermission and, and using that intermission to process, much like actors probably do in intermission. They think about how can I be better in Act 2. But at the same time, you don't want to just think about how you can be better. You want to feel good about Act 1. And this text helped me feel good about Act 1. Um, 
So those are the emotions I felt in days 31 to 53 in the hospital. Uh, and then I was released, day 53. Um, it was so cool, and it was our plan, and we implemented it to walk. I didn't want to walk out of the hospital, just me. I didn't want to walk out of the hospital, just me and Della. I wanted to walk out of that hospital, me, Della, Mary-Kate, and Kyle. Because for me, there was so much love and support around me without a doubt. But the core four of getting me through 53 days in the hospital was, was us. So we walked out of Spalding, the four of us, and I loved it. We got into a car, the four of us, and I loved it. And we went shoe shopping. Because that's what I do. You know, when I was in middle school... Every time a girl dumped me, which was a lot, my mom would buy me a pair of sneakers. And that sort of led to my sneaker addiction for sure. So hey, when you get out of the hospital after 53 days, what do you do? You go sneaker shopping. You go to Assembly Square in Somerville. You go to every sneaker store there trying to find something you can wear other than Crocs that has no heel. And you don't find anything. Because guess what? I don't like slide-ons either. It wasn't exactly flip-flop time. Uh, but that's what we did, the four of us. We went sneaker shopping. Uh, then we went to Brigham and Women's and we saw, we met Dr. I met Dr. Wertheim and Dr. Verilman. Dr. Wertheim is the one who saved my life on the ventilator. Dr. Verilman is the one who saved my life, um, as I went into surgery to get the stent. Talking to those guys and, you know, they said, they said, we don't get to do this. We see all these medical emergencies and we do everything we can, but we don't get to see the person afterwards and we don't get to see them alive and well. And so it, you know, they looked at me like I was a miracle, and frankly, I was looking at them like they're miracles. Awesome experience on my first day out. Then we went to dinner with Wendy and Angelo in the North End. You know, probably no more special. Probably no more special dinner in my life than that one. Might be the best hug I've ever had was hugging Angelo. And we just had a great time. And then we slept in Boston, the four of us. We slept at one of the Allegroni condos. We slept in Boston that first night to be near the Brigham. The Brigham Hospital brings Della a lot of comfort. And the first night that I was not on a hospital heart monitor, or actually the second night, they took me off at the last night at Spalding, but First time I wasn't in a hospital, she wanted to be near the hospital. That had saved my life. So it was great to sleep there. And next day we drove home, the four of us. Uh, I'll never forget arriving at my house mid-morning. And not surprisingly, my dad and Nick standing in the driveway. Waiting to see me. Uh, it's perfect, perfect to arrive to Newton Road and see my dad and Nick in the driveway. Then to head out to Longmeadow for when the kids got out of school. And as the kids all start arriving home, get to hug Mela and Tegan. It was awesome to hug them and then have them just jump into the kind of day they were already living. 
you know? So it was like, yeah, dad's home. This is awesome. Big hug. But then, yeah, I'm in the middle of the day. I got stuff to do. Loved it. Hugging Cam, Kyle. I'm sorry, Cam, Charlie, and Ben. Hugging my mom. Nick wrote poetically about watching me hug my mom on Facebook, I think. Just her just looking at me. You know, she of all these people that look at me like I'm a miracle, she always looks at me like I'm a miracle. So the look really wasn't that different from my perspective. But obviously, that was a great hug. And really, all the hugs. You know, I've been home, I don't know, five, six weeks, I guess. I just keep getting to have these hugs with people I haven't seen. And, you know, I wear my mask. You, we do the face away hug for COVID safety. But I, I never knew how meaningful hugs were going to be. You know, I'm a hugger. But these hugs have just, re, they've redefined the hug for me since I got home. What else? I go to cardiac rehab at Bay State two mornings a week. I put a heart monitor back on, which I love. I work out while they stare at my heart on a computer. It's great. It's my new demographic. I'm much younger than anybody else, at least in my session over there. Uh, I've had to live with COVID concerns since I got home. Um, you know, when I was met with one of the doctors, um, they sort of said, Listen, like not only can you not get COVID right now, but you can't get a you can't get a cold right now. Um, and so COVID's a bummer at all times and anybody who's escaped COVID tragedy is lucky. Uh, but I've had to live with a lot of COVID concerns since I got home. I've had I've drank a lot of decaf coffee since I got home. Not a lot, but it caught one or you know, one a day. Uh, wasn't allowed to have any caffeine or or barely any alcohol when I got home. Uh, I could have a drink here and there, but not much. Uh, so decaf coffee, Heineken 0.0. That was my friend at first. Um, now I've moved on to some pretty good non-alcoholic beers, athletic brewing. And I've definitely had some red wine and Guinness here and there. Um, the soccer sideline, it was great to get on the soccer sideline and see both girls just thriving in soccer and just deeper appreciation of watching that for sure. Um, but nothing can trump the first two basketball games. The first game I saw was Mela playing and the joy I get from watching my two kids play basketball. I certainly have an unhealthy or very healthy obsession with basketball at all levels. I just love it. Uh, but I love nothing more than watching Mela and Tegan, who are two very different players, by the way. I just have no more joy than watching them play hoops. And so as I've come home, a lot of it is about like feeling alive again. And the first time I saw Mela and the first time I saw Tegan play hoops again, it's about as alive as I have felt ever. I just felt so alive watching them play. Um... Another weird thing since I've been home is like running into people that I don't always know who were clearly invested in my story. You know, one day, a couple stories here, like one day I was walking up the stairs to rehab at Bay State and this woman walked by me and then she stopped and was like, oh my God, you don't know me, but I have followed your story. You are unbelievable. Your family is amazing. What an impact you've had. And I just... I donated and I followed the story and I just am so happy to see you. And I was just floored. I was just floored. Um, 
And there's been little story, there's been little moments like that a lot since I got home. I've been in parking lots and people have yelled out, Timmy Strong, and multiple times, and I just wave. And uh, it's been really humbling to see this sort of impact. Um, and, and frankly, you know, one thing I've started doing is if I see one of my friends with a Timmy Strong sign in their driveway, I take it down. One of my friends got mad at me. He said, you don't get to tell me when to take down my sign. I took down his sign and put it in his backyard because, you know, I just want the, you know, I, I'm, I'm eager to just live, right? But, uh, but that's been funny. And then, you know, even yesterday, yesterday I went back to the barber for the first time and finally got rid of my Bob Dylan mess and I had to let my hair grow because I had a bald spot in the back of my head from being in bed for 30 days I, I developed a bald spot and finally now the hair has grown in enough that it's not too noticeable so I went yesterday to finally get a fade uh and even that was awesome the kid in the chair before me recognized me and I he was my student and he said the nicest things about his memories of me and then my barber Ali who's just the man he's been cutting my hair for 15 years now um he didn't know what had happened. And then I started to tell him and he said, oh my God, I saw you on the news. Didn't really register that that was you. But now that I think about it, of course that was you. And, you know, we just had such a great conversation about health and family and he's got two daughters and, you know, and then when I went to pay, he didn't let me pay. Um, and that's been the story at a lot of places. I've gone to a lot of places since I got out and they don't let me pay. And just further gratitude for all of this, just for all of this. Um, another thing since I've been home that I, I did feel was hospital atta attachment. Like, it's weird. You hear about POWs and people in jail and whatever that they get home and they part of them misses where they were. Um, and I had that. I had that. It was weird to be able to walk around my house. It was weird to have multiple parts to my day. And there were times that I missed the hospital. Um, it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't even negative. But it was I, I, still to this day, sometimes I just miss the comfort of the hospital. Um, it's a weird emotion, but it's one I've had. And then just probably the best progression is becoming less and less scared. You know, less and less scared that I'm broken. Less and less scared that this is going to happen any minute now again. Um... And, I, you know, I could measure this by how many times a day I check my heart rate. Um, wearing a Fitbit that constantly measures my heart rate. And it's less and less every day. There's hours that go by that I don't check it. And that's good. That's good because I want to live. All right. Now we're moving towards what would be sort of the last couple chapters of the memoir. If you're still with me, God bless you because I know this is long. Um. Mary-Kate, as I said in the beginning, keeps asking, what have you learned? What changes? You know, she, she's been wanting me to verbalize what I got out of this. So right, here you go, MK. There's three things that summarize what I've learned, my long-term lessons. All right, lesson number one, health matters, exercise matters. I was saved by so many people, no doubt about it. But one of the best moments was a doctor in Spalding said, I hope you understand how important it was that you came into this challenge healthy. She said, if you weren't healthy, 
If you weren't in the shape you were in, there's no way you survive this experience. And as I mentioned before, sometimes there was a why me? Why how, why did this happen to me? And if you've read my Facebook post, you now know this was a this happened to me because of a form of bad cholesterol that we have no power or control over at all. There's not even a medication to help you lower it. It's not something that's in blood tests, so you don't know about it unless you request a blood test for it. It's called LP little a. If you haven't been tested for it, I can't recommend enough. Get tested for your LP little a. Normal number for it is 75. An emergency number is 180 or higher. It turns out mine was 179. I think they should lower that emergency down to 179 or higher. Um, that's what caused my heart attack. It's a combination of bad luck and probably hereditary. Um, so going back to the emotion, what I've learned, health matters, exercise matters. When this doctor said to me, if you hadn't been so in shape when this happened, you wouldn't have made it. You might not have even made it to the ambulance. When your friend Angelo was doing CPR, your body was able to help him with the CPR because it was so in shape. And so I've always known exercise and health matters, but that is a takeaway that's multiplied by 100 now. And as I grow older, as we all grow older, health becomes even more important. I am living proof that there is a fine line between living and dying. I understand that line. And being healthy can save us. Um, so now I'm eating a heart-healthy diet. It is not easy. Some days it's miserable. I haven't had a soda. I haven't had a french fry. I haven't had barely any cheese. I haven't had, I've had one slice of pizza since July. Um, these things that I loved, they're gone. They're out for me. Um, chicken tenders, chicken wings, red meat. I have had one serving of red meat since July. And I'm going to start to have some of these things in moderation. But the bottom line is I need to be heart healthy. I had a great heart to enter this, but now I have a heart disease for the rest of my life. And I need to be, I need to eat heart healthy. And of course, Della's guiding me in that. Kyle's guiding me in that. Um, and then I need to stay active. I need to walk. Eventually, I need to jog. I need to bike. I need to lift weights without overdoing it. I need to hike. I need to... All these things matter to keeping me healthy. Um, I'll never forget, one of the doctors said, the only thing that met, that we can't emulate, the only thing we don't have a pill to emulate is exercise. Doctors can't give us a pill to emulate exercise. And therefore, we it's on us to exercise. Health matters. Exercise matters. That is lesson number one. I can't let my health slip. I have to be consistent. And I have to make sure if anything else happens to me that I could have some control over by eating healthy, living healthy, and exercising. I want to have that control. I want to have that control. So I've, I've always exercised a lot, and it's only more important going forward. That is lesson number one. Lesson number two is that I need to live fully while acknowledging death. And I, that sounds like a Buddhist gift card, I understand. And Buddhism, which I'm, I, I read about a lot, I practice, I, I think about, it's been teaching me this forever. You know, you gotta, in order to live fully, you have to acknowledge and understand death. Um, 
And I've tried to grasp that, but it's always felt a little bit disconnected. By accepting death, we can fully live. By accepting death, we can fully live. Well, guess what? Now I get it. Now I get it. Death is no longer abstract for me. Every day, every hour of every day, I think about how close I was. And I know that I'll stop thinking about it so much, but not yet. I think about it every hour of every day. And I still have fears of it happening again. Um, I think back often to the things I did the week leading up to this, the jog, the late night swim, the basketball camp, all these things. And for so many people, this is how death happens, right? You do all these things not realizing it's the last time you're going to do all these things. It's like death lives right next door to life. It's not like down the street. It's right next door. Uh, it happens instantaneously. And it almost, you know, I was so close to that being my story. Oh, my God, I can't believe Timmy turned 43 that week and ran a basketball camp and had a million interactions and went for a jog and fist bumped Gigi and, and then died. And then that was just it. I was so close to that being my story, but it's not my story. It's not my story. So I have the blessing now of understanding that death lives next door to life, but that you got to live that life fully while knowing it's next door. Um, one of my best books ever, one of my favorite books ever is called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Kalanithi. Uh, when Breath Becomes Air. If you haven't read it, it's short. It's a memoir. Of, of a young guy who's dying. Um, it's amazing. And a quote I have hanging on the wall in my basement from this is, to be able to envision a vast and long future is a privilege. Soak this privilege in, but remember how quickly your vision can be drastically altered. So all of us that wake up every day and just assume we're going to wake up a lot more days, that's a privilege. There's people that don't get to do that. And I still am assuming I'm going to live a long time, but I now have a deep understanding that I might not. I, you know, something else could happen. And that is going to help me live more fully. Um, one of my better friends, Michael Baresi, he is an incredible scientist and artist. And he, he, he took this big log and I don't know if he wood burned or carved into it, but he put two quotes on this log and then sent it to my hospital. Um, and one of the quotes was actually a quote he found of my own that was in a book um, that my dad had given me by his friend Danny Sheehy, who passed away. It's a book that Danny Sheehy wrote. So one of the quotes is from Danny Sheehy, and then one of them is from a quote that I think I wrote in the book that I thought of while reading it. And that quote was, in order to get through tough times or discomfort, we must remember that the passing of time is part of the equation in fixing things. And this was so important to me because I just wanted to be better. And I kept reading this quote in the hospital, like the passing of time is part of the equation in fixing things. And that quote helped me a lot. And it is it has helped me a lot since then that time must pass in order to fully heal, right? And I need to understand this also to live life fully. I can't just live my life now wishing I could jog two miles, wishing this, wishing that, you know? Time is gonna pass and I'm gonna heal more and more. And in the meantime, I need to still live life to the fullest right now, right now. So 
I have to live with the fear of imminent death without it overwhelming me. That's the key. You know, we all know we have to be ready to adapt at all times, and I am called on now to do that. I have to adapt. I now have to live a life that understands how close death is, and and that doesn't become a bad thing. That's a good thing because it's going to remind me how to live every day. I got a great letter in the mail recently from my buddy Wheels' dad, um, Ray Warren, and he he's he's... As he expresses in the letter, I think he said, I've had to deal with a lot of close fastballs as well. Or, uh, and, you know, he says that uh, some, one thing a doctor told him is you have to live your life. Quote, you have to live your life. And I think that meant a lot to me in his letter. And that was something I've learned. That's, that's, that's this lesson. Acknowledge death. Understand it. And because of this understanding, live your life. Live your life. Balance the understanding of death with maximizing the time we have. Find that sweet spot. Find that sweet spot. Right now I'm listening to a book on tape, Green Lights, by Matthew McConaughey. I've always found him interesting. Um, and He just had a quote I came across recently. His quote was, live your legacy now. Live your legacy now. Don't live your legacy tomorrow. Don't live your legacy once you retire. Don't, don't think about what's next. Don't wish away today. Live your legacy now. Love that quote. Love that quote. And I think it sums up this, that I have to live life fully while acknowledging death. Live your legacy now. Live it today. I love that. And I've learned that. I, this moment has taught me more than any Buddhist book could that I have to live my life fully while acknowledging that death lives next door. All right, one more. Lesson number three. Maintain and share out a positive and loving spirit. Maintain and share out a positive and loving spirit. So much love surrounded me in this moment. So much. And I need to give it back. I need to give it to my close family. I need to give it to my extended family. I need to give it to my friends. I need to give it to the Timmy Strong community. I need to give it to my Birchland family. I can't tell you how important my Birchland Park family, the students and the staff, have been to me feeling okay during all this. Oh. Just yesterday, I was with Connor, my assistant principal, he brought me a new pair of sneakers that some of my teachers got for me. Their sneakers are dope. I love them. Made me take them out of the box. And they sewed on the back one of them, Timmy. And they sewed on the other one on the back, Strong. So I, I literally have a pair of Timmy Strong newbie, New Balances. Just unbelievable. And if you know my story from life, you know that I proposed to Della with a pair of Nikes. I designed a pair of Nikes for her that she took out and there was tape on the heels and she said, what's this tape? And I said, I don't know. I just, I designed them. It came with tape. I didn't take it off. She took off the tape and I had designed on the back of the Nikes, will you marry me? And then I, of course, got down on my knee and whatever. And man, a big part of act one was marrying Della. A big part of act two was Timmy Strong and what it did for me, especially during my intermission. Uh, so my Birchland family, 
Um, all of this love and support has been both amazing and overwhelming. And now, lesson number three for me is I need to give this all back. All of it. So what do I need? So, so the lesson here for me is what do I need to be ready to give the world the spirit that I want to give, right? Because it's easy to say I want to give this all back. But you have to think deeper. You have to think how you're going to do that. And of course, relationships matter so much. It's always been the focus of my life is relationships. But let's start with, in order to give all this back, the first thing that has to be intact is my soul. I have to feel good on the inside. I have to have a strong soul. I can't give the world what I want to give it if I don't feed my own soul. You know. So how do I do that? I do that by reading. I do that by listening to music. Nothing feeds my soul maybe as much as music. I need to learn, keep learning, keep exploring. I need to keep meditating. I need to have and develop new hobbies. I need to spend more time in nature. These are the lessons I've learned. All of these things are important to feeding my soul. All of these things make me feel better on the inside. What else do I need to do for my soul? I need to do my Timmy Strong work. Thanks to everybody's generosity, we got a lot of money to do a lot of good with. And I'm, I need to, when I do work on that, even already, it makes me feel good on the inside. Our 16 lyrics work. You know, today, York Middle School is getting an influx of books and our Representation Matters initiative that we raise money for and that now kids are going to read. And I need to keep being a part of that work to feed my soul. I also have to feel, you know, like... You can't, your soul needs to feel, in my opinion, a wide range of emotions in order to be healthy, right? You can't just get through the grind of the day and have your soul feel great. You have to take your soul on a journey. Gotta feel ups, gotta feel downs. I gotta laugh hard, I gotta cry a lot. You've heard me crying on this podcast, for God's sake. And, and, and all... Feeling that, feeling all those emotions keeps your soul or keeps my soul in a good place. And I need it to be in a good place to cope with everything I've been through and then to give to others everything I want to give. And this has always been a focus of mine, but now I've dealt with true trauma. You know, one of the blessings of my life has been my ability to feel mental and emotional health, right? I've been blessed with that. Just it's been some somehow it was given to me that I feel mental and emotional health. And I've always wondered what's gonna happen when I deal with true trauma. And now I've dealt with some true trauma. And now this feeding of my soul is more important than ever. And then like I said, relationships, they matter more than ever to me now. Also, I need to have little moments with others and maximizing this joy. You know, um, there's a picture hanging in my hallway that I stole from my dad. It's framed. It's three old Irish dudes sitting on this bench in this non-distinct Irish village. And they're just sitting there. And I've always looked at that and been like, how do I get there? How do I get to true happiness just sitting there with others? You know? And this moment has helped get me there. Um, I want to just sit on a bench with everyone I love. And that's a lesson I've learned here. And especially with Nayla and Tegan. 
There's just seven years left until they're both gone to college. Just seven years left. And you know, it gets harder as the parents that have been through these, a lot of my kid, a lot of my friends have younger families. So they're at that moment where they're like, oh my God, I need a break for my kids, right? I'm in that next phase where my kids, they don't need me much. They got social lives, they got school lives, they got athletic lives. Once their day is full, there's not a lot of time left for mom and dad. And that's beautiful, I'm happy for them. But it makes this moment harder, right? But now it's about the quality of time. So here, here is, I'm, I didn't plan to say this, but here's an example. In the last two days, the last two days, I've gotten up and instead of having Tegan get in the car with my dad or Uncle Richard at the time that gets Mayla to school on time, and then Tegan gets dropped at the Berkey's until she goes to school. The last two days, I've let Tegan sleep in a little bit till seven. I've woken her up. I've made her lunch. I've driven her to school, just me and her. And that's been awesome. That's been awesome. It's not that I didn't appreciate that stuff before, but how much more I appreciate it now is exponential. You know, we listen to Springsteen Sirius Radio because Tegan loves Springsteen. The other day someone was talk the other day someone was talking about I forget who it was. Someone was talking about wanting always wanting more. Like just some stupid story about always wanting more. And Tegan, God bless her, I swear to God, said, Oh, it's like the Bruce song where he says Poor men want to be rich. Rich men want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. I was floored. I was absolutely floored. I was so happy that she used that quote. Because I think about that quote all the time. I'm so happy she gets it. Anyways, the reason I thought of that is because on the way to school, we listened to Springsteen. But then yesterday, she put plugged her phone in, took over the DJ, and started playing Christmas music. And, you know, it's the first week of November. It's too early, but not much too early. It's Christmas is getting longer and longer in this family. But I'll never forget that. I'll never forget her putting on Christmas music and her smiling and us laughing. And You know, she's texting her friends while she's with me, but who cares? Everybody does that. Uh, and then, so that's in the last two days. And then in the last two nights, Mela has hustled through her homework so that she could come downstairs and watch the Celtics with me. You know, and the Celtics have had two good wins, a great win last night. And it's just, just that is the time. I always appreciated watching the Celtics with Mela. Of course I did. But I appreciate it a thousand times more now. And this all goes back to relationships and giving, giving to the world the spirit I want to give it. And so the last two nights watching these Celtics games with Mela, I didn't multitask. She did. I didn't. Wasn't on my phone much. I didn't have my computer out paying bills while I was watching the game with her. Just watched the game with her. And I'm so lucky to have learned how important that is. Basically, on the ride to school, I'm sitting on that bench with Tegan. And watching those Celtics games sitting on that bench in Ireland with Mela. And I want to sit on that bench with everybody. It's about the quality of time. 
It's about little moments with friends and family. It's about conversations, just sitting together. You know, not, not having life be the pursuit of the big moments. Oh, I can't wait for this. Oh, I can't wait for that. Oh, this is coming. Oh, this, I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to do that. Nah, that ain't it. It's these little moments. And these relationships matter so much. The mentoring, I, I, I got to keep doing that. And I miss Jason and Dakai so much because they moved. And now we just keep in touch when they come home or on text or FaceTime. But I got to keep doing that. And I got to keep coaching and having these relationships with my players. And both high school and youth, I, just the relationships with the players. And I can't wait to start having these relationships with the students and staff at Birchland again. I'm getting closer. I just can't wait. Mandela, of course, no more important. There's... I don't know how to say this and not sound wrong, but like, there's just no more important relationship in my life than Mela Tegan and Della, and especially Della, like, God willing, Mayla and Tegan are going to go out and build their own lives, and that's what I want them to do. And guess what? Me and Della are going to be together that whole time. Our life is together, and our relationship with her, I'm so grateful for it, but we need to keep building it. And this moment has helped us build it in ways we could never build it before. But we need to keep building it. We, keep, we need to keep liking each other. It's so important. I want to sit on that bench with Della 50 years from now and still like her. And I'm gonna. I mean, we're like a retired couple right now. Um, but we've only we've only enjoyed each other more and more living as a retired couple in this time period. And it's made me look forward to retiring with her, you know? Um, so all of this and all of this, like learning to sit on that bench and learning to feed my soul and learning to appreciate all and, and dive fully into these little moments. That all goes back to the larger lesson. That's what I need to do in order to implement the lesson, which is to maintain and share out a positive and loving spirit. So those are like the steps on the way to me giving to the world the spirit that it just gave me, that saved me, and I need to keep giving it back over and over. I need to bring a positive spirit to the world every day. That's how I pay the world back. And in order to do that, I need to do all the things I just talked about. So what's next? Well, I got to get back to work soon. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that moment so much. I want to get back into coaching. While it's been fun to watch from the sidelines, it's, I'm built to coach, and frankly, I think Dell and I have decided it'll be easier on my heart if I'm coaching than if I'm watching. So um, I need to keep working on Timmy Strong, keep working on 16 Lyrics, mentoring, doing these things that bring me joy and feed my soul. Um, I had my echocardiogram earlier this week. I've been over the results enough. It went well. You know, I have a heart disease the rest of my life. But I have a stable and functioning heart. And thanks to the wonderful doctors and the medications, 
I'm gonna be okay and I can live a long time. I have a big day for my lungs on December 22nd. Got some tests, they went through a lot. Got some tests, got an appointment with Dr. Wertheim to go over those tests. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of medical stuff in my future. I don't think I'll ever not have medical thoughts the rest of my life. You know, I'm done are the days of an annual physical only, but that's okay, that's okay. So as I said, moving forward, my goals, you know, be healthy, live life fully, while remembering how fragile it is and bring positive spirit and love to every moment. Uh, and it's funny because when I put these notes down, those three lessons sound so normal, right? Like before heart attack, you could have said like, what are your big lessons for life? Or what do you think? And I, I might've been, I might have been, they might've been the same lessons or at least close to these lessons. You know, it, this stuff is not revolutionary. Um, however, this, you know, I, I guess it's just funny that my lessons sound so normal, but thanks to what I went through, thanks to what I went through, these lessons mean so much more to me now, you know, and I think to live these lessons out, to, to stay healthy at all times, to live life fully while acknowledging death, to bring a positive spirit and energy to love to every moment. The key is... I don't want to get emotionally lost in the daily grinds. It's funny because I want back in on the daily grinds. I want to be back at a middle school every day. I want to have practice over here and practice over there. And I want to be like, hey, where, how are we going to make dinner work? And I want that. I've had a big intermission from all of that. I want back in. Act 2 really begins when I get back into that daily grinds. But I want to get into that grinds without getting lost in that grind. I wanna live the grind while actually focusing on these three lessons for moving forward. They're, they're goals I care, I wanna care about them in every minute of every day, you know? It's like when I'm driving from work, like I'll have a stressful day at Berkson, I'm sure, and then I'll be driving to pick up Mailer or Tegan and, or the Berkeys, and then I'll be dropping kids here, and then I'll be going to coach, and you know, when I'm doing all of that, I want to be doing that, but emotionally and mentally, I want to be thinking, hey, this is awesome. I'm doing, I'm in the grind. But hey, have I been healthy today? What do I need to do to stay healthy today? And hey, am I fully in this moment? Am I enjoying picking up Tegan to drop her somewhere else? You know, am I appreciating this moment? And, and how can I bring spirit to this moment? How can I bring something to this moment? Instead of just being lost in the grind and worrying about what's next and am I going to make it? Guess what? We all make it through the grind. <laughs> Everybody does. Everybody wakes up, stresses about their day and gets through their day. You know, save for the people that have a tragedy, of course. But we all get through the grind. So I don't want to waste time thinking about it or, or harping on it. I want to enjoy getting through it by focusing on the bigger stuff. Be in the grind, but focus on my three new goals. That's the goal of Act 2. Be in the grinds, live in the grinds, but focus on these bigger things while I'm there. If you're still with me, I give you a lot of credit. <laughs> this is a long memoir. Uh, but thank you so much to all of you out there that helped bring me back to life. Anybody that's been connected at all to me or to Timmy Strong or to me in the past, everybody played a role. And I mean that. 
You know, I, I truly feel like my body is a miracle and my community is a miracle. It, I, needed, I needed both. I needed my body and I needed the hospital and I needed my supportive community. I needed all of it. All of it mattered to get through. I needed each and every one of you. So thank you so much, you know? And that's my memoir. Now the goal is to just get back to fully living, to being in the grind while remembering the bigger picture. It's time for act two. I'm psyched. I'm so psyched for act two. Thank you everyone for getting here. Keep it moving. True that to the K I M. Ain't got no time for shucking and jiving. Uh.